0: the joy. Uh, So I want to do a brief review, and and then would love to introduce Mike here, but just a brief review on where we've been two years of our life. If you've been around here at Hillcrest, we've been going through Luke. We've been in it two years now, and we've made this movement from the entrance of the king to the teachings of the king to the journey of the king, and this morning as we enter this spring, the victory of the king. And so if you look back, the entrance of the king started with Luke telling us, there was this guy that lived 2,000 years ago and Luke wants us to have certainty in who Jesus is and, and he's like no one else. He's like no one else. There was angelic prophecies, a miraculous birth, uh, an interaction with 12-year-old Jesus in the temple demonstrating he's like no one else and then he made a turn through his baptism and genealogy that Jesus was both fully God and fully man, that through his baptism we saw... Uh, a genealogy is he is fully man. And then, and then also a declaration on that baptism, fully God. And then we made a turn to the ministry of Jesus, to the teachings of the king. And we saw Jesus begin inviting people into this journey with him. And we saw him overcome Satan as a precursor to what would happen on the cross. He he, overcome every temp, he overcame every temptation as a precursor to what was going to happen. And then he began his journey. Uh, and he started by declaring that, this, that the Messiah has arrived and that those in Nazareth and Capernaum missed him. He, he made an invitation that his message was for all, even to the Gentiles, and they wanted to kill him. He opened up the scroll, read from Isaiah, and they understood what he was doing, and that they wanted to kill him for that extension of invitation, and yet in the midst of many missing him, some saw, and we saw the gathering, Peter and Levi were some of those that Luke highlighted. Peter, let down your nets, and Peter saw, instead of going, wow, he said, I'm a sinful man, (laughs) I need you, Jesus, Jesus. And then we saw his opponents begin to grow, these religious leaders that didn't appreciate what he was sharing, that he had claimed to be God. And then we saw in his ministry, his power, his message, and this growing sense of followers who you wouldn't expect. His power over disease, nature, death, and sin. I have the ability to forgive sin, and so I say to you, get up and rise. He developed or he shared this radical thinking, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, this radical upside-down kingdom, and then calling people to leave everything. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Come and follow me. And then there was the turn, a turn towards the journey, towards the cross, the journey of the king. And and in chapter 9, that change happens. When the days drew near, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent out messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. There was a mission. There was a purpose. And if you remember then, over the summer, we looked at that journey of the king starting when he set his face, eyes up, all in. If you remember, we showed a video of those Oklahoma softball players. They participated in life. They played a game they loved and yet they understood life was more than softball. Then we talked about follow and go Go and follow Jesus. And we talked about the Jim Harbor quote. You remember that? Who's got it better than us? Nobody. Jesus said there's life in his name. Who's got it better than those who follow Jesus? Mary chose the good, not simply the better, but sitting at Jesus' feet was the good opposed to Martha. Jesus teaching us to pray and then speaking to different ways of his observation of this wicked generation. And he kept moving towards Jerusalem, Luke, From chapter 9 to chapter 19, sprinkled that phrase throughout the book. He journeyed towards Jerusalem. And then in 14 to 17, we saw three very specific interactions where the Pharisees watched him, the Pharisees grumbled, and the Pharisees ridiculed. And each time, Jesus responds about the desire to invite others into the kingdom. Three times he responds and tells a story about the banquet the great banquet that everyone's included in. And then he tells the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And then about this rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man misses it. And Jesus welcomed the person that no one would expect. And then he brings his people in a little closer. And he gives them more insights into what this journey looks like. And then over Advent, we talked more about that journey where Jesus responds. Jesus calls and we saw people respond. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said to the 12. And over Advent, we saw Jesus gathering and people responding. He gave the illustration of the persistent widow, this posture of hope. We saw the rich ruler demonstrate a lack of peace, a lack of desire to follow Jesus and put Jesus on the throne of his heart. And then we saw, the, 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 for me, one of the beautiful stories, the blind beggar received sight. All these other people who could see Physically couldn't see Jesus, the blind beggar is the one who saw. And then the culmination of the journey of the king, the loving call of Zacchaeus produces life. The guy who no one would expect, the chief tax collector, turns his life to Jesus. We just, come, we just summarized two years of life in about five minutes. How does that feel? Can you remember stories in your own heart over this past two journey Of different points where you've seen God reveal himself to you in Luke? It has been a delight, and now we are turning towards the victory of the King. So, Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll jump in.
1: Yeah, gladly. Hey, good morning, everyone. Great to be here. Good morning on this very somewhat eh, cold Sunday, but... uh, Just
0: another day in Wisconsin. Just just another day
1: in Wisconsin, right? Well, hey, I'm blessed to be here uh, with you all to co-preach this passage. As David said, I'm Mike Weiss. Uh, and uh, uh, my wife, Cora, and I have been attending Hillcrest here uh, since this past summer, uh, and we have just been uh, encouraged and blessed by the welcoming community that, that we've been able to receive and, and then have found it easy to connect, uh, connect into. Uh, we've been married for seven years, and our family is our, uh, our dog, Lacey, who we've had for the last four years. Uh, but then also in the Wise household, we get to welcome a baby girl here uh, in just a couple of months. We're very excited about that. Thank you. Very excited about that. Uh, before moving to Madison in the fall of 21, uh, I had served at a church in Milwaukee as a, as a youth and associate pastor for eight years, and now currently I serve as an operations director for University Christian Fellowship. And I'd love to, as we're, as we're still getting comfortable in the community, would love to connect and meet with you, but yeah, let's jump into the text because there's a lot to cover here uh, in Luke 19. And when I think of this passage, when I think of uh, what the text we're about to read, My heart tends to associate it to uh, kind of the Palm Sunday service, right? When we read Luke 19, we think of palm trees, we think of Hosanna, uh, and we prepare our hearts for Holy Week, and that's great, but I think what David and I want to do this morning with you all is we want to take a, a moment to just go deeper into the text in order to see more of the things that are going on here, and to do that, we're going to look back at Scripture, and we're also going to look ahead as well. But our, our main idea for this morning is: to, is we are out of Luke 19. We're talking about the celebration of the prophecy fulfilled, but we're also talking about the grief and the prophecy to come. Hmm. So let's look at this text together in Luke 19, starting in verse 28. And when he had and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, "'Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest.' And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, "'Teacher, rebuke your disciples.'" Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So looking at this first portion of the text, we'll get to a little more here in just a a little bit throughout Luke. And I appreciated uh, David giving us a recap because we've covered a lot of ground, a lot of content. And here we are at this moment that is pretty celebratory, right? Uh, For the the life and ministry of Jesus, this is uh, an incredible moment to behold, I'm sure, for those there. But the question is, why are we celebrating? What's happening here? And so here are three observations I want to draw out real quickly here. Um, We want to talk about the instruction by a sovereign God about to be king, the significance of a promise made and kept by God, and the response of celebration by those who recognize Jesus for who he is. So let's look at this first point here. Uh, We we notice that Luke is using a lot of ink. Uh, to talk about uh, Jesus and, and how they traveled to Jerusalem. And it, it seems kind of odd because, you know, like, haven't they been there before? Like, as good uh, as good Jewish men, they probably would have traveled to Jer- uh, Jerusalem for a holy holy pilgrimage, a holy meal, a uh, meal of feasts or booths. Um, there's also a lot of content talked about about how Jesus got the donkey where maybe it would have been simpler just to say they got a donkey and they were going. Hmm. So what is Luke trying to give to us here In this text, Mm. I think Luke is trying to help the readers and the hearers of this to know that this is the journey. This is the journey into Jerusalem where everything is about to change. This is the journey into Jerusalem that Jesus had been telling his disciples about in three separate occasions. This is the journey into Jerusalem to which everything that was broken back in Genesis 3 Mm. of all creation is about to be set upon a path towards redemption here. This is the journey into Jerusalem where people will see Jesus as the king that he truly is, just not the king that everyone expects him to be. So when a king is coming into town, um, we have this instruction. And and who gets to decide that? Well, uh, last year, England coronated a new king, King Charles uh, I will bet money that he probably had uh, little to say over how the process was going to go. He was just told, "All right, King Charles, you be here at this time." But he had a team that took care of all the details for him. This king, King Jesus, gets to decide the details. Mm. He's the one that gets to decide uh, how this process is going to go. Everything has been premeditated. Everything has been coordinated. And after months of years of keeping his ministry quiet, this is the moment. This is the time that Jesus is now going to say. Wow. Let's, let's make this thing public. And so Luke shares this instruction to help the hearers understand uh, what's about to happen as well as a promise that was made hundreds of years ago. So here's our second observation. The significance of a promise made and kept by God. So this is where we need to look back at Scripture uh, to about 500 years prior to this moment and to see where God's people were at. And, and they had gone through a, a bit of a ringer. Uh, the Israelites for so long, at that point, had lived under foreign power where they suffered much and they faced cultural pressure. And as they were moving into this post-exile world and they were in need of rebuilding their, their lifestyle, their culture, even their temple to worship, the prophet Zechariah foretells of their future king and how they would recognize him. Mm-hmm. If we look back at Zechariah 9, 9, he says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So we, we have this now, this promise that has been made, right, where God is telling his people, for, for all these trials, for all these troubles that you've gone through, uh, your king is coming. Now, what the promise didn't specify was the timing, right? And so you can imagine, if you're God's people, you're kind of waiting and wondering, all right, when is this king going to come? Is he going to come now? Uh, Tomorrow? Next year? Uh, Instead, there's a wait. And I think we can imagine uh, there is, well, excitement. Maybe there's doubt because the promise has not yet been fulfilled. Mm. I don't know if you've ever doubted uh, a promise. Uh, I know I have because, one, uh, I've broken promises, and promises have been broken to me. And and so sometimes there's that anxiety. But we are reminded that this God— does not break his promises, especially ones made to his people. Mm. Though he works on his own calendar, he does not forget the words that he speaks to his people. And so Luke 19 is proof of that reminder of that, the fact that God fulfills his promises. Mm. And here's his prophecy being fulfilled. And so with that, what comes next? It's the response is that of celebration by those who recognize Jesus for who he is. And so we read this text, and we, we hear the praises, we hear psalms being being spoken over, there's this excitement. And I, I feel like for me sometimes, when I read a text like this, it's hard to know like, how, like, how excited are they. And, and my mind goes to uh, some of my dear friends and family who are uh, Chicago Cub fans. Any Cub fans out there? That's okay. I'm a Brewer fan anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Um, but I, I remember for so long, many of my, my family and friends had talked about, man, their team will never win a World Series. It's never going to happen, uh, as if they'd been around for 100 years waiting. And then and then finally, right, what happens uh, on November 16th, 2016? They win, right? There's the, the Cubs pull it off. The curse is broken, whatever. And from that comes <laughs> parades, excitement, fanfare, a little bit annoying at times, but... You feel happy for them, I guess. <laughs> but, but one of the things I, I just keep in mind is that that's a celebration, while significant, mm. for a baseball team. And, and so my, my mind kind of goes to, I can imagine for those who have been waiting and longing for the promise of God to be kept, all the more grander is the excitement and the celebration for what is happening. Mm. But we also see in the text that not everyone uh, was excited. About what was going on. So we see, blessed is the King who comes, but then we, oops, I want to go back a little bit. Uh, but some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Hmm. So not everyone is excited about what's going on at that moment. Uh, the Pharisees we read right are trying to quell the crowd a bit, and I love Jesus' response where He says, "Like I, I tell you, if, if they weren't, uh, if they were silent, creation, the ground, the stones would cry out." What is Jesus' meaning by this? And so I'm going to invite David up here to help us in this transition. Um, and, and David, here's what we're going to do: I'm going I'm to ask you an obvious question. You're going to forget what you just saw before that. I, I um, am. I am. Uh, David, uh, <laughs> we're going to throw another sports reference because I know you're a sports guy. <laughs> Uh, who is the greatest football player in the world?
0: So, so, uh, so if I hadn't seen the slide, then I'd probably say Kirk Cousins. I mean, he's a pretty dominant dominant quarterback. We've seen without him what the problem has been uh, for the Minnesota Vikings. Or, or it might be
1: Randy Moss. That might be another close uh, close one in there. Kirk Cousins is a choice. I know the Vikings aren't playing later today, uh, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> All right that's a little subjective maybe i 'll ask you this question uh, uh, David uh, who 's the greatest basketball player in the world yeah so so I so some of uh, some of
0: the people that immediately come to mind outside of me were Kevin Garnett or <laughs> or Reggie Miller, if that name means anything to anybody, probably the greatest three point shooter of all time yeah so great just I would say those are those are at the top of the list Kevin Garnett.
1: I mean, but what we know about David is that he is a diehard Minnesota fan. Unfortunately, though, David, I think that honor belongs to the guys who have the most rings. So greatest football player in the world, Tom Brady, greatest basketball player, Michael Jordan, love them or hate them, they have the rings, right? <laughs> they, they have all of the jewelry that then show off and say, yeah, we, we won a, a few different times. And so I think to me, right, there, there's an obvious answer to, to the question here. And I think this is a lot of what Jesus is doing at this moment right he is He's, he's making an obvious statement to the pharisees that uh, that everyone everyone knows this. Jesus is not recognized by all, but who he is should be obvious
0: mm. uh, m- much like Tom Brady uh is recognized as the greatest football player i mean he is, he's, he's recognized he's been incredible. Michael Jordan, a phenomenal basketball player, not with the most rings, but with 6-0 undefeated runs for the Bulls. Uh, When you walk uh, and you see a beautiful sunrise, it it is demanding your praise. It It is obvious, and yet simultaneously not recognized by all. Jesus is not recognized by all, but who he is should be obvious. Jesus says even the stones would cry out, Even the stones, if you don't wonder if Jesus ever used sarcasm, there is a beautiful example. He's like, guys, if if these people weren't celebrating me, even the stones would cry out. That King Jesus has arrived, and we celebrate. That Jesus is here, and there's a celebration, and yet, simultaneously, grief and the prophecy to come. I don't think it's by accident Luke put these two texts together. That he speaks to the celebration of the King. The King has arrived. And then right on the heels of that is what? Grief. Weeping. Celebration that the king is here, but grief in the prophecy to come. Jesus weeps for those who don't recognize him as king. Here's what Luke says and records. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. God is sovereignly orchestrating reality for this moment, as Mike said. And then even in that, some don't recognize him. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. I don't think this is like some single tear that Jesus is having. Instead, he's weeping. He is bawling for what he sees. So then the question is, what does he see? What is he weeping over? What did you guys see in the text? What's he weeping over? I think Jesus is weeping because he loves the lost. He loves those who are still looking to see. Here's what Luke records. And as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. He is weeping for the lost. There are those that are right in front and are missing what is obvious right in front of them. Does that feel true in our world? Something that seems so obvious that there is King Jesus that we long to experience, and yet and yet we are so satisfied with so many other things. He loves the lost, but he mourns their missing of him. I stumbled upon some stats recently from a book a few years ago that spoke to this missing in our culture. 84% of Americans believe that the highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. And so I actually enjoy that stat. I actually go, wow, there's, there's, there's a longing for happiness in this life. And most people are looking for it. 86% of people believe that to be fulfilled requires you pursue the things you desire most. Again, I think the way God designed us, he designed us to worship. That when we see a sunset, we want to praise that sunset for what it is. When we see a phenomenal athlete doing something only they can do on a high level, we we want to celebrate that. When we see something beautiful or glorious, we want to celebrate it. But then this last stat is where it went differently for me. 91% of Americans affirm that the best way to find yourself or find that happiness is by looking Within yourself. That the way to fulfill that longing isn't by looking up, it's actually by looking within to the things we want and satisfying by sitting on the throne of our hearts. 91% of Americans would say that's the way to solve this longing is by looking within. And I love what C.S. Lewis speaks to on this issue. Here's what he says. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is looking for longing. Indeed, if we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We keep looking inward for what we believe we will find significance and fulfillment in. What is Jesus weeping over? They're missing what is right in front of them. And is this a new phenomenon? Does anybody recognize who this is, what this picture is uh, depicting? Anybody know? What is it? Narcissus. Does that name mean anything? Greek mythology. Narcissus. Bruce, will you tell us who that is? Okay. Oh. <laughs> Thank you, Bruce. Narcissus. Anyone ever heard of that? It is a guy who was beautiful, better than any other person and was so enamored by his beauty, saw a reflection in a pool and was drawn and captivated by it and couldn't let go of that, entranced by that reflection in the pool so much that it killed him. And now there's a flower that's named Narcissus. Again, Greek mythology, not real, but there's the picture, right? This idea of us wanting to sit on the throne of our hearts is not new. Like you heard Mike say, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Satan says to the woman, Did God actually say? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What does your heart say? Well, what do you want to do? Do what you find in your heart as the meaning and purpose and fulfillment in this life. It's not new. And I stumbled upon a few hashtags that I thought were interesting in and of themselves, some of them benign, but made me smile because this is not a new phenomenon. There are some hashtags that are relevant in our context that speak to this. Okay, Boomer, you guys ever heard of that hashtag? Hashtag? It is essentially dismissing anyone over an age as irrelevant and, and, and inconsequential because everything that is new and cutting edge, that's what matters, right? Just unhitch yourself and unhinge yourself from traditions and family and religion to find what's meaningful in your life. Follow your heart. From any show, from My Little Pony to, uh, to Frozen, follow your heart. Follow your emotions. What are your emotions telling you? And you should do that. I had an interaction with my son just recently on this very reality. Uh, you guys were snowblowing your driveways this weekend, I assume? Uh, yeah, it, it was quite an adventure. There was a lot of snow. I don't know. We shooting that thing all the way up. And, uh, and I was fostering an opportunity for my son to participate with me. And uh, and and wouldn't you know it? He was less interested in that in that opportunity, so he would traipse on inside, and I would follow him in and pull him back out, and we did this a few times. And finally, uh, I sat down and, and I said, "Buddy, like, what, what's the deal? Like, what? Why aren't you? Why aren't you helping?" And he goes, "Well, Dad, that's this is your job. This is what you're supposed to do." And I went, oh, oh, "It's an interesting perspective." And so uh, so I asked them this question, buddy, do you, do you think Dad wants to be out here? Now, maybe there's some strange people in this room that actually want to be out snow blowing. I am not one of those people. So I turned to him, "Do you think I want to be out here?" Silence." And I answered for him, buddy i I, I do not want to be out here, but but i I love our family, and I love." and find happiness in taking care of our family and providing a safe place so we're not skidding up and down the driveway and we can go participate in fun things like sledding. And so, and so because of that desire, I will endure. If I was driven by following my heart, you and I would both be sitting in here enjoying some, uh, some hot cocoa by the fire. But for the happiness that is further, my emotions become the gauge, not the guide. Jesus mourns they're missing him. They see what's right in front of them. Another one, be true to yourself. (laughs) Just be true to yourself. Whatever that might be, just do do that. Another one, the answers are within. So, so, So don't find any perspective by any other influence. Just whatever your heart is telling you, do that. The same issue that Jesus is mourning, it's not new. We long to sit on the throne of our heart and have no guide but ourselves. The gospel continues to call us to have King Jesus sit on the throne of our heart. The king has arrived! And he enters the city and he weeps. And then another one, just love is love. Well, wherever your emotions and your, your sexuality is driving you, just move there. And yet Jesus looks at this city and weeps. Why? Because most people would say, well, I've got to give up my joy to follow God. Instead, the constant call of the gospel, what we hear in this text, it is actually this journey. Don't settle for these things in life, but there is joy in Christ. Continue to follow, and that ultimate culmination, and the most satisfying enduring thing in this life is King Jesus. He weeps for those who don't recognize him as king. And yet there's another heavy element to this. And don't hear David saying this. Hear Jesus sharing this. He weeps for those who will be judged. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And if the stones, if you were silent, the very stones would cry out. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That There is this prophecy of what is going to happen to Jerusalem uh, for rejecting their king. You could probably see that tide and also an anticipation of a future judgment connected to this idea. Uh, this is Jesus saying this in about eighty thirty, 30, Luke writing and recording this in maybe eighty sixty 60-ish. And then the city of Jerusalem is taken captive in AD 70 and demolished. And so the first one, you're going to be trapped by your enemies. Jesus is telling them what judgment is about to come upon them, that the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they're not just going to be friends. They are going to seek to destroy you. They will kill you and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And then third, the city is going to be leveled. The city of Jerusalem will be decimated. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation (laughs) because you didn't recognize the king had come. And so Jesus weeps. He weeps for them. He weeps because they're missing what's right in front of them. And he weeps for what's about to come because of their rejection. And so when we look at our lives, do you see the world through this grid? We all deserve total destruction. That King Jesus is weeping for those still in their sin and missing him as the king. We celebrate the king is here. And yet simultaneously weep. Why do we weep? I think we weep over our sin. There's a weeping that takes place because of what put him there. We weep over our sin. Maybe you've heard this phrase, love the sinner. And then sometimes it's said, hate the sin. I think it's Preston Sprinkle, and I love the quote, hate my sin. As we move forward in this life, do we weep for those that have yet to treasure Jesus? And and we hate the sin we see around the world. And there's a mirror that we shine back in our heart of what Jesus has done in our life to reconcile us to him. We all deserve total destruction, weeping over our sin. And so every week we talk about Monday still matters as we enter into 2024. Does Monday still matter? Still stinking matters. And so my hope would be this. This text, I think, embodies, embodies the Christian life. I think Luke put these here deliberately because we wholeheartedly celebrate the prophecy fulfilled that King Jesus has arrived and simultaneously grieve in the prophecy to come for those who have not yet treasured him. That every day we wake up, there's a joy that there is a delight that King Jesus is here. He is present, ruling, and reigning, and his kingdom is advancing in hearts and lives. And yet simultaneously, does everybody recognize that? No. And so there is this grief that happens, both joy and grief simultaneously. Mike, what's that looking like when we
1: think about that celebration? No, it's a good, it's a good question. And David, here's you know what I think about. Um, we think about how Jesus is worthy of our hearts and our celebration. And, and yet, I know sometimes we go through moments where uh, maybe we don't feel that. Or, or maybe we're going through a difficult and challenging season. Uh, I resonate with this quote that I came across. The world is filled with reasons to be downcast. I know that's a little more on the, on the depressing side. Um, so we can we can re-text like Luke nineteen and talk about the celebration while yet in our own our own hearts maybe aren't feeling as stirred uh, for that. I know it's been kind of uh, my case, uh, my uh, my wife and I as we've kind of thought about uh, this past year. It was definitely a year that we would rather not repeat for for a lot of reasons. It began with uh, the loss of a, of a family friend, uh, then came job loss, and then the real kicker was at the end of October uh, I became. Uh, Very sick uh, to the point where after a couple of weeks of of not getting better, worsening symptoms, loss of 25 pounds, uh, we went to the hospital, and uh, I had a four night stay there where I found out I had ulcerative colitis. And uh, Mm. thanks to the medical attention, I was was doing better. But it's kind of hard to celebrate in those moments, right? When when we feel as if like things are just really difficult and challenging, but yet we've kind of talked about a little bit, one of the things that the Lord has just been working in my heart in this last year as a reminder is that, despite our circumstances, we still can have joy. We still can celebrate. And we can do that through a couple of ways. One is by celebrating, by seeing the provision of God in the past. We think of Zechariah, we think how, how God made a promise and he kept it. And that, that, that is extraordinary. That is amazing. And I think when we look back at our own lives, we go, man, like, how, how has the Lord actually provided for, for us? And for me, uh, while in the hospital, we had uh, great care from our, our doctors and our nurses. Um, we had many people just show love and care. In fact, even, even people within our life group, which we were really blessed by. I remember Fred coming to visit uh, in the hospital. And, and also reminded, too, as the, as the sun would rise... Um, I remember at 5 a.m. thinking, oh, my my God made that sunrise. Mm. I remember that I can celebrate in the past because I remember our God is sovereign. Our God is over these things. So we can celebrate Mm. by seeing the provision of God in the past. We also can celebrate by seeing the victory of Jesus that is to come. Uh, I'm one of those people that likes spoilers sometimes just because I like to emotionally prepare for like a TV show (laughs) or a plot. I'm kind of weird that way, I know. Yes. And that's... Thanks. And that's one of the things I love about being a follower of Jesus is because we know that, you know, how while we, we see difficulty around us, what well, maybe we walk through difficult circumstances, we, we see that the King reigns mm. in the end. Mm. And that's something that we, we can find hope in our hearts and we can celebrate for even in the hardest of circumstances. Mm. Uh, in the midst of
0: your circumstances, and thank you for sharing just a few of those, What is our heart always stirred to celebrate King Jesus as fully as we'd like? Um, not maybe as full as we'd like, we still sometimes settle or are challenged. And so we can celebrate by seeing the provision of God in the past, and and we can look ahead and celebrate what what we cling to, the hope that he is coming again, seeing the victory that Jesus has to come. And and then the other element of the text, um, do you weep? (laughs) Do you weep for those who have yet to treasure Jesus? Maybe you'd say intellectually you weep. Maybe theoretically you, you would say you weep. Uh, does your heart break for those that have yet to treasure Jesus? And, and if I asked, is there one person, is there one person that comes to mind? Um, who is that? When you think of someone who's yet to treasure Jesus, who, who's that person that comes to mind? Does that person fill your your thoughts as someone that you hope and long would come to celebrate the arrival of the King? If not, might we ask why? Why does my heart not break for those who have yet to treasure Jesus? Why is my heart not filled in the way we saw Jesus' heart filled? Uh, Might we pray for God's heart? that we would have his eyes to see the way he sees from Luke 14 to Luke 17. Might we have those eyes? Might we never forget eternity is on the line in the midst of the tragedy and sometimes it's so overwhelming and yet might we never forget there is life beyond this. Not just to look in, but actually to look up and see there is a God. Eternity is on the line and, and then reflect on our own. Journey with Jesus, that God in his grace brought us to a fuller understanding of himself. And then might we see and celebrate people helping people find life with Jesus? How many? One life at a time. Might we celebrate one, do for one what we wished we could do for many? Do we weep for those who have yet to treasure Jesus? And then might we actually believe We're living proof of a loving God that we actually get to pray and watch and then step into gospel opportunities all around us. And so how might you step to help that person that came to mind take one more step towards Jesus this week? What might that look like? Might I offer a suggestion? Is that okay? Mike says, yes, I'm not sure the rest of you, but here we go. God, what are you inviting me into? And then I think sometimes we see it in the glamorous or the big or the extravagant or or some massive movement. Hear me say, I I think the steps are taken in, in seemingly ordinary places of unhurried time. When we pause long enough to hear God, we put our phone away, we think of that life, and then we go, what would unhurried time with some level of proximity and some type of activity, usually over food, maybe coffee. And then that unhurried time with proximity and activity multiplied over time and conversation. And you guys have heard of, uh, of the guy Francis Assisi? And he's got a famous quote attributed to him. What's that quote, Mike? Preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. If necessary, use words. I I might argue, the words are necessary. (laughs) Conversation is critical. Sparking curiosity with an intent to see that God might be drawing that person to treasure Jesus and see and celebrate the arrival of the King. And so unhurried time, with conversation over time, actually produces something. People are projects. It's actually with the hope of friendship. It's actually with the hope of growing to know someone's story, to celebrate the king and weep over those that have yet to treasure, always just pointing people to see and celebrate the king. And so my hope might be what that step, it probably looks somewhere in here. How might you step to help that person that came to mind, see Jesus for who He is. And I'm going to invite the worship team up because where it starts is, is always in the same place. You, you don't move to action without actually being stirred in our own hearts. In all of this, we remember and practice a heart of gratefulness about what God has done for us. And so we're going to celebrate in communion. And, and we're going to celebrate by reflecting on what God has done in our life. If, if you treasure Jesus by faith, we participate in this beautiful symbol called communion where we reflect and remember God's sacrifice for us, the breaking of his body and the spilling of his blood through the cup and bread. And so my encouragement, sit, reflect. We're going to take the elements. I'm going to encourage you to, to come up when you feel led. Grab the elements and return back to your seat and Reflect. Reflect on God's gracious gift to you and then weeping for those who have yet to treasure Jesus as well as weeping for the sin that still remains in our life, but that has been defeated on the cross. So when you feel led, come up to the front, take the elements back to your seat and reflect uh, and then take the elements when you choose. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Thank you for the work you've done in our lives. Thank you for the sacrifice you've made so that we can be made whole and restored to relationship with God the Father, always for your glory. Amen.